Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 196. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore on Twitter, joined by my co-host, John White, at VJourneyman. Hey John, how you doing? I'm doing great, Nick. Just want to remind everybody that we are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Fantastic. I just want to remind everybody that the Nerd Journey Knowledge Graph is now live. We've mentioned it a couple of times. Surf out to graph.nerd-journey.com for a more connected, searchable platform to mine the show notes and find interesting topics and trends that you might not have otherwise realized were there. This week is part two of our interview with David Babbitt. Oh yeah, it's going to be a trilogy. I like trilogies. How about you, John? All the best ones are trilogies. Yeah. If you missed part one of the trilogy, let's review very quickly episode 195. David Babbitt studied software development in college, somewhat influenced by his father's decision to switch careers. He worked for a large company as a developer, and he chose to move to startups to make a bigger impact. And in that episode, we did some really interesting, I guess what I'll call myth debunking of what it's like to work at a startup compared to other companies and the risks involved. But in part two, the conversation goes in a different direction. What do we have on tap, John? Yeah, that's right. I think some interesting things to listen out for is David's move to product management from pure developer work. And then especially in that role, influencing the developers without actually having managerial power over them. And then also that relationship with the engineering manager, who is a peer of the product manager, who actually exerts managerial power over the development team. found that to be fascinating. Yeah. I would listen for the discussion of player coach right off the bat. What's it like to be a player, someone who executes and does things for the team, but also has to coach the team members? Yeah, that's a really good point. Very uh, awkward position or interesting position or powerful position, depending on your viewpoint. I think lastly, there is a discussion about some of the language and I would say jargon that product management and developers use that I kind of knew what, what these words meant, but didn't have like a really strong grounding in the definitions. and. We really got, I think, properly schooled on what some of those things meant. But why don't we get directly into part two of our discussion with David Babbitt in episode 196. How many people were you coaching because you said you were a player coach on that mm -hmm. on teams at spiceworks how big was that impact past just i'm a software developer 
Good question. So, I mean, it changed over time. So when I first took on the role, um, it was probably a 10. It was like half of engineering, I guess. Later on, as we started to separate the teams into kind of the products, if you will, then I took on I took on a product and then later on created a new product. And so those teams were probably or a couple of new products and those teams were smaller. So like five to eight per, per team. That feels like a good size. You start to get to like 10 or 12 and it's like, ooh, your player days are over. You're just coaching at that point. Totally agree. I, mean, I think also, you know, again, this kind of goes back to the the whole point of like startups and how mature are they in different roles as a, as an early manager in a company that, you know, just made me a manager that hadn't made other lead engineers managers before. Like, I did I really like respect the role or put in, invest in in the role of being a manager as much as I should have? No, I don't think so. Like doing one-on-ones on a constant basis, giving feedbacks, you know, giving feedback on a constant basis, trying to actually develop these engineers. I mean, a lot of my focus was the product and getting the product out and uh, on time. And so there was some, there was some amount of mentorship as just sort of like a technical lead, but I wouldn't say like as a manager, I was doing the best job. To be fair, like people have told me I was a decent manager, but <laughs> I don't, yeah, maybe I'm too self-critical, but I, I felt like I could have done a lot better. That's twenty twenty hindsight, right? you totally later on realize the skills that you should have had or the actions you should have taken when you went to college you shouldn't have cut so many classes boy i regret that one too <laughs> same thing exactly the same thing you know you, totally like, if i had to do this all over again i'd be so much better at it yeah you and everybody else right yeah yeah, yeah totally <laughs> So did you stay a manager? I, I noticed on your um, LinkedIn that you actually had a director title at one point. Yeah, so the, it's been all over the place, to you know, to be honest. it's um, So at Spiceworks, what happened was, like like I said earlier, so we were kind of player coach dev managers, if you will. We didn't have product managers uh, in, in the first kind of go around that they created management. And the thinking there was like they we wanted everybody to feel close to our users. We wanted everybody to sort of empathize with the problem. And we didn't. We didn't want like somebody whose responsibility it was to do that. And then everybody else was just like an engineer. But then later on, as we grew, it became more obvious that we needed to have some people that were more focused on the execution, like getting the product out the door and other people who were just more focused on, you know, what is the problem that we're going to need to solve here? And and so I took the product manager path and then near the end at Spiceworks, I was a, a my title is executive director. So it was I was promoted, I was managing PMs and I was managing dev managers and designers and analysts. And so I think of it sort of like a, a GM, but I didn't really have like a budget of my own. In more relatable titles, it might be like a director of product management or something. That's probably a more relatable title than, than executive director. You weren't responsible for profit and loss on an entire product. And I didn't have marketing, like I couldn't hire for my own organization. Like I didn't have, I mean, I could go and ask for headcount, but it was, you know, I didn't, it wasn't quite that aligned under me. Like I couldn't go and say, this is the budget that I need or whatever. Everybody always has to ask for a headcount. It's just who you're asking. For sure. Was this for the new product you mentioned you went after or, or created? Weave that in for us. It was really for multiple products in the end, I think, if you know, memory serves me right. So second product that I managed at Spiceworks was a uh, network monitoring product. So we created that one from the back of a napkin. So like recognizing there was a, a huge gap in the products that we had that were servicing this problem in the market. A lot of users were coming to us, you know, looking for network monitoring. And, and we just had this inventory tool, tool that was sort of passing off as a network monitoring tool. And so I got to create that product. So I got to pick my team from from everybody else and then 
turn that into a product. But I was just like the the leader of that product. It was just a single manager. Then after that was when they made me and, and Kevin also directors. And that became my products. Oh, man, I'm trying to remember. I think what I was director over was we started to create an, essentially like an app store concept. So we were creating a marketplace inside of Spiceworks to, to create extensions for the inventory help desk and network monitoring product. And I think I was mostly over that. I, I honestly don't remember if I was also over inventory and help desk at the time. Maybe I was. How poor my memory has gone. But so, but I wasn't directly over product anymore. Like no one product and its future. Like I had PMs and, and engineering managers that were reporting to me. Can you maybe take the time to define what a product manager actually does? We asked this definition of what a software developer versus software engineer is, but maybe there's people out there that don't have a clear vision of what a product manager is. A couple of ways you can think about this and maybe even a few ways. So this is where there's, there's a lot of confusion around product management because I don't think that there are really a lot of hard and fast rules. So one thing I think that, that I've seen in the industry, and I haven't done a ton of research around different titles at different companies and stuff like that, but for, for sure, one way to look at it is like what you typically see is there's like a, a product manager and a technical product manager. I said it at the onset, I'm a, I'm a product manager technical, I'm a technical product manager. The, I've seen those two titles in many places. I don't think that it doesn't necessarily mean that any one company has like both of these titles. I'll just say that as well. Um, what I've seen is you know, for for both of them, like our responsibility, and we'll get to sort of like the day to day, but like our responsibility is the future of this product in this market and making sure that, you know, this product is successful. And so the future of the market, you can take that in lots of different ways. And we can talk about that as well. But it's basically like your responsibility is the success of this product in the future of the market. When you kind of look at that from like the, the product manager versus the technical product manager lens, product managers, the easy way to sort of categorize them that they're more focused on like the business side of it, if you will, right? So partnerships, pricing, packaging, maybe the bigger sort of like economic concerns in the future of the market, stuff like that. What I've seen for technical product managers, like the really easy way to think about them is like they're probably the product managers more closely aligned with engineering. They go to ceremonies or sometimes they're also called product owners, depending on the company again. But, you know, they're, they're working on the design. They're working on like tough tra- technology choices, thinking about the future of technology in the market, translating some of the business problems to actionable stories for an engineering team. So I think of those two kind of big, big buckets. That's one way to look at it. Like another way to look at it, I've heard, you know, you typically will hear that like a product manager is the CEO of their product. I don't actually love that term because product managers don't manage people. Like we manage a product, we have to influence everybody else. So like if I was the CEO of my product, I would have the engineering team report to me or the marketing team, you know, report to me, et cetera. But that's not how, how it works in, in any company. And product managers typically don't manage anybody. They just influence others and try to get sort of alignment in these, in these directions that are the right direction for this product. Another one that I love as an example of, of like the definition of product management is you're sort of like the my friend uses this the sort of like the ooze that fills in the gaps in the organization i think that you see this a lot in startups so your responsibility is again for like the future of the product being successful in the market but in order to ensure that future like you end up like putting on lots of hats and filling in lots of roles and so if your company is not great at your startup is not great at sales enablement or at you know product marketing or pr like you'll end up wearing all these different hats somehow and, and helping out. So I think I think that's part of it. Another way you can think about like PM is sort of like, what is the responsibility? Like, what do you, you know, what do you have to do day to day, week to week? So I already mentioned, like, you don't lead people directly. I mean, you influence them. It's sort of a fine line too, though. Like I'm, I'm paired with an engineering team. I've always 
basically been paired with engineering teams at different companies. So it's, you know, they know that you're their PM. And so like, yeah, they don't report to me, but they know that they're doing the stuff that I want this product, you know, the direction for this product. It's not exactly like they report to me, but they are essentially under my influence. Does that mean, sorry to interrupt you there. No, go for it. Does that mean you have, that that's based on a strong relationship between you and the engineering manager? And the engineering team. I mean, I, I think that I've been lucky in this way too, that I don't, I have heard of, and I don't, I've never personally felt this very, I've heard of sort of like antagonistic relationships between like PMs and their engineering teams. And I don't think that I've ever really felt that. So a lot of times when I'm saying this is what we need to do, and this is how we think about it, and this is the direction that we're going, you know, sometimes it might be met with sort of initial confusion, but ultimately, you know, you win them over, you, you know, they start to believe in you as you show more success and stuff like that. But I have heard of sort of like pretty dysfunctional organizations where the PM wants to do something, but then engineering wants to do something completely different. And I've, I'm, I've been lucky to where I've never been in that situation. In my experience, you know, when, when I'm saying this is, the, you know, the set of stories that we're working on next, or this is what we're doing for the next quarter or six months, like it's been generally well received and understood. I want to come back to the stories, but mm -hmm. I also want to ask about that tension. The uh, You are responsible for helping to deliver this thing, but you have only influence over the people that are actually doing it, as opposed to, say, an engineering manager who could hire or fire these people and say, you know, you're not pulling your weight. I need to put you on a, a performance improvement plan. You have problems interacting with the people that, you know, are important to interact with. And you need to work on that. And that's something that I'm going to be measuring you on. You don't have any of that as a PM directly, mm -mm. yet you are leaning on, you know, one or two or more teams to deliver the success on the product. And that feels like a fundamental tension. Is that something that I'm, I'm right about or am I just way off base about? I'm trying to see if it's like, I'm trying to think to stories of other PMs and other organizations to say, do I necessarily think that that's a problem in general or is it just like a problem and, and, and a problem that I haven't experienced or anything like that? Yeah, I'm, I'm not like my job has nothing to do with hiring and firing. Is it almost like you have like an operations like right hand person to handle the day to day operations of the team? Oh, yeah. No, there's a, there's a dev manager. Right, right. But what I'm saying is that's a role that's abstracted away from you personally as having that responsibility on top of all the other responsibilities that you have. And and is that why it is typically structured that way? So you don't need to worry about managing the people. You can just manage the product. I guess maybe I've been in this role so, so long that I don't I don't even think of them as related. They're almost like so orthogonal to me. I'm not also managing necessarily the complexity of how they solve the problem. Like my responsibility is really like, what's the next problem to solve? My responsibility is understanding in order for this product to be successful in the, pro in the market next year, what are the challenges that we're going to face, the headwinds, the tailwinds, the, the economics of it all? you know, the user base shifting, adjacent markets, all these sorts of things, thinking about that, like where do we need to be positioned you know, what, what important features, what problems do we need to have uh, in the solved by the product in that time frame? What order do we need to do them in? Like, these are all the things that we think about, but you know, how they actually solve the problem that I'm giving them to solve next is, is that's the engineering's responsibility. You know, are they capable? Are they firing on all cylinders? Do they need to hire more? Do they need to fire? Like that's the engineering manager's responsibility. I think where it starts to get a little confusing is like when we talk about like technical product management and in technical product management, sometimes you are asked to answer questions that are 
or help out with making technical trade-offs. And so some of those technical trade-offs might be like, are we over-solving this problem or under-solving this problem based on what you think is coming in the market later on? Like might be one technical trade-off. Another one might be just like, you know, frameworks and like, is this worth the investment to shift from this framework to that framework? Sometimes you get involved in those conversations, which to me feels a little bit more engineering manager than PM, but I could see it being different at different companies. And are you keeping a tight cadence with the engineering manager specifically so that you have the a good relationship and they know where your mind is so that they can kind of help guide the ship too? Yeah, I think this this varies by PM and maybe it also varies by like, do you consider yourself sort of like the product owner slash technical product manager versus are you more like what I call like sort of the more business product manager? Uh, I go to all the ceremonies. So if, if you're familiar with sort of like any, any agile way of development, but typically Scrum, you've got like a product owner there that is there that is representing the the set of stories and, and you know, what we need to do next and, and what, what does it look like as a, an acceptable solution for this story? Like I'm involved in all of that. And, and that is because maybe because I have like a history of being an engineer and I like to be in those, those levels, uh, that level of detail. I do think there's a lot of that for me. Again, maybe to a fault, like maybe I shouldn't be this involved and maybe it does take more time than it should. But I enjoy it and it's part of my, you know, kind of sort of happiness or work or whatever. And so if I if I was too far away, I think this kind of goes back to the like the director role and then stepping away from that role over time. Like I I found myself too far away from the engineering team and kind of the week to week of the engineering team and what they were building. And it wasn't like I was I needed to be in there solving the technical problems or working with them to answer these technical choices. For me, it was all about the creativity of the of the solution for the customer. Like we've got a problem to solve. How do we solve it? Let's be creative. What's a good solution? Like I just liked being close to like the creativity of it all. And and so that's also why I'm probably kind of week to week with, with this engineering the engineering team. So I, I would say to answer your question quickly, like yes, I'm like super in lockstep with my engineering team. Do you mind if I ask how much time? product managers, technical product managers spend in conversations with customers versus with other internal like field facing teams, engineering and others at their company? Certainly you can ask. Uh, I think I've seen it vary by company. Brand new at Amazon. I can't really speak to like the, the what's the right balance at Amazon yet. So we'll skip over them and I'll just like talk about previous roles. At Ping, so my last job, I was working at a company called Ping Identity. We're a security software space. Our customers are all name brand, bank, healthcare companies, et cetera, all the, all the, the big brands that you're probably well aware of. I didn't really get to interact with my sort of like the, the hands-on keyboard sort of user. I didn't get to interact with them all that often. Sometimes you did. A lot of times you were just sort of like dealing with like the director, some sort of like director title inside of security and stuff like that. But from that and, and often, so to answer your question, like hours a week easily. And I think that that's important. Like your responsibility is to bring back this information from the market, from the, the problems that we're solving to the engineering or in order to ensure the success of the product. So we would hear from like our customers, like what are on their roadmaps at Ping? Like, what, you know, what, what, what are they trying to solve in, in the security space over the next year? How can we align with that? Make sure that we're well positioned for where they need to be this year, next year. So you'd hear things like going back to the conversation of DevOps way earlier, like you'd hear that they're finally... Uh, going to start automating more and they're very interested in like you know, containerizing. And so we would make sure that our software at the time was positioned to be run inside of Docker containers and stuff like that. So there was like a lot of that kind of feedback, but I would say you should definitely dedicate, I would I, easily hours a week would be good. It never, it never got to that point, um, you know, on a, on a regular cadence level because you find yourself doing lots of other responsibilities that probably you shouldn't be doing. Uh, as a PM kind of goes back to the whole ooze comment, like you might be filling in gaps elsewhere in the organization and, and you'd find yourself like that. That probably is 
is not the best investment of time, but somebody has to do the job. And and that would take away from probably like the right amount of, of user research and product research that I think is important. I think you end up having to rely more often than I'm comfortable doing and in, in, in sometimes like on this internalizing, I would say you have to, you have to always have to like, as a PM, you always have to like empathize with the problem that you're solving for your customers or your users. Like what are, you know, what are their challenges, you know, that they face on a day in day out basis or on a more macro basis than that and really internalize those. Cause you can't make everything a research project. If you, if you know what I mean? Like you can't go off like, Oh, I've got this problem to solve. Let me go and talk to 20 users and find out, you know, if should it be this way or that way you can't, you've got to sometimes just build on go on the empathy that you've built and internalizing the sympathy that you've developed over time. Suddenly, a lot of the questions that product managers would ask at executive briefings makes a lot more sense to me. <laughs> yeah. But I have to imagine that executive briefings aren't the main time and place that you're asking these types of questions. No, but it's a really astute point. Like I, I would use it as my opportunity sometimes because I this is maybe a reflection on my personality a little bit. Like, you know, I recognize that the company needed me to be doing executive briefings or what I would call a lot of outbound stuff that I don't think is necessarily the responsibility of the PM. But if I'm going to be in front of a customer and I'm going to be sort of talking about our roadmap and presenting, I can't remember other stuff that we would present in executive briefings. A lot of times we were talking about the roadmap. I would stop and ask questions and say, you know, what do you think of this or of these three things? What was the most important? And which would you choose to drop and stuff like that just to try and make it somewhat the other direction not just kind of me talking at them for an hour and, and i don't know if that was i think it probably made some some of some other people in the room uncomfortable that i would do it that way but hey i was there i was there to learn uh, no that happened in every single executive briefing that i was ever at with the pm good so i think that that must be a very very typical thing i just want to make one comment uh, real quick david so my or my observation is that this shift from ex from executive director back to product manager got you a little bit closer to the customer interactions you were getting when you used to go out and be part of the Spiceworks user groups because mm -hmm. that's where we met. And I mm -hmm. remember you coming to the group. Here's what I'm working on. Give me some feedback. What do you all think? Was the absence of the customer interaction that maybe that in that high-level executive director role, what drew you more to product management in addition to the, I want to make more of a difference and be closer to the engineering? I would say it's not so much probably like making more of a difference. I mean, when you think about somebody's responsibility as a director and their influence over a larger organization, that's definitely more making an, uh, kind of an impact on the company. I would say for me, it was as soon as I became a director, and this has now happened twice, so I became a director at Ping too. So again, this actually goes back to the like kind of to a fault, I'll do what the company needs. And both times I was like presented with this opportunity to become a director. And, you know, the, the first time I was like, yeah, sure, I'll try it out. Second time I, I went into it like eyes wide open. I said, well, you know, I've seen this movie play before and I'll tell you how it ends. So I'll do it because that's what the company needs. But just recognize like, I'm probably not going to do it for that long. But both times, like, got too far removed from the creativity, I think, is the easiest way to, to characterize it. So, you know, a lot of your job becomes more about, you know, managing others, obviously, about reporting on status, if you will, kind of reporting up, managing up, measuring progress, measuring against goals. Like, all these things are super critical. I'm not, I'm not saying that they're not. There just weren't things that, that super excite me. And I think also, like, I, I can have a balance of that if I get, I'm doing half of that with the other half of my responsibility being 
you know, working with the product, you know, engineers working directly with the designers and the customers to really solve problems and be creative about solving customers' problems, then I would I would still be happy. But what I found in in both director roles was just I was too far removed from it, and then I just didn't enjoy it as much. And I think I think that's fair. Like it's you know you shouldn't be pushed into these roles and then like be stuck there. Like it's okay to take a step back down. And I did it twice. Yeah, it's important to recognize what I think takes away energy. Yeah, from you in your work life and what gives you energy. And if the main responsibilities of a role take away your energy and make you unhappy, then that's a good sign that you should not do it. And there also should not be a problem with going, hey, you know, I, I filled in on this yeah. for the organization, but really this is not what I want to do. And I want to go back to, you know, something similar to what I was doing. Yeah, I mean, I kind of also think like takeaway energy is maybe a little bit strong. Like for me, it just not exciting. To be fair, I wasn't. I was. I was just not good at it either because I didn't want to put. I didn't want to put the level of effort into it that that was necessary to be good at it because it just wasn't something that totally excited me. To your point, right? And so for me, it's like I get excited with like interacting with like Nick was mentioning earlier, like going out interacting with users, understanding the problem, thinking like thinking creatively with engineers to solve the problem, and. You know, as a director, I just didn't experience that. And I just didn't put the effort into like being a good director. I'll be honest. And every and both of my bosses will 100% agree with me that I did not do it. I don't know. I guess that's what I mean by giving you energy or, or taking away energy. It's the, I enjoy this to the point where I will independently raise my level of effort yeah. because I get joy out of it. That, as okay. opposed to, eh, you know, like uh, that actually just makes me sad or that's not appealing, right? Yeah, fair. I did want to circle back and ask about a couple things just because we have you here and we get to talk to somebody who has experienced this, you know, in the development side and then, you know, talking about this from the product management side. And that is this idea of user stories. And then you also mentioned like agile ceremonies, mm -hmm. which is a little bit more on the, the development side. But if you could kind of talk about those two things, because I think a lot of people on the operations side have no idea what those things are. Oh, wow. Okay. Let me think about this one. It doesn't have to be like a, a ground up like definition, like academic, but maybe your experience, you know, and how to, you know, if I said, Hey, that's industry jargon. Can you explain that to me? How would you explain it? Yeah. Are these like short stories about the end users or novels? I Comic books? <laughs> I, it's not clear to me. Okay, so I'm, I'm sure there is some sort of academic answer to this, and I'm going to fail that test. So for me, so a, a story like, okay, so there is a, I forget, there's actually a name for this pattern of writing a story, but like the story usually goes as a so-and-so, like a persona or a user as a so-and-so, I need to or I want to do such and such in order to do such and such. And so it'll typically be like, I need a feature or I need to solve a problem. And then the in order to is more like the outcome uh, that you're trying to create. So it might be something like if, if you're familiar with Jira or some other sort of like project management system, you might say like, I need as a, as a project manager, I need uh, a way to rank stories or to rank features inside of my project in order to, what would be the in order to for that one, in order to make sure that we're working on things in the uh, achieve our product goals and make sure we're working on things in the right order or something along those lines. I'm making this up. I put, I put probably more effort into writing stories than, than the average person. One, one, one thing that I, that I liked from actually a story writing book was talking about story as like, think of it as a caption from like a vacation, I think was how they, they, they framed it. And so it's like the caption from, from the vac vacation on like a picture doesn't tell the entire story of what's in that picture, 
but like you get together with your engineering team, you talk through the story that you wrote there, and then you talk through lots of like what ifs and could this be solved in this way? Or they're, they're trying to like feel their way around the requirement that you wrote. And so think of it as like, they're, they're sort of like asking you more about your vacation to go back to that analogy and like what was going on before and after this picture and how'd you feel about it and all these things that they might ask you, you know, but what they remember later on when they're looking back on solving this problem is the caption that you wrote at the bottom of the picture. Your goal isn't to write down everything that you experienced that's in that picture. Your goal is just to sort of write the caption and then talk through it. And, and I'm not pedantic about writing stories. So I don't write them all the time with as a so-and-so, I need to do so-and-so in order to do such and such. Right? I don't write them necessarily that way all the time. I try to. I think it's important, obviously, to relate to the customer and what they're ultimately trying to accomplish. But sometimes you can get really lost in trying to make sure that you've done that part right. And I think it, you just lose sight of the the bigger problem or the bigger picture. And so for me, it's like you're just talking about a requirement. And then I want to have a conversation with the engineering team to make sure we're on the same page about what I'm asking for here. And for me, and I think this is also a little bit atypical, making sure that we're on the same page is a collaborative exercise where we write acceptance criteria together. So acceptance criteria is like usually just like a few bullet points on a story to say like a solution that would be acceptable for this problem would, you know, include would would be this or that or the other thing it would be like some 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 criteria. And the way that I look at it is I wrote the acceptance criteria. However, the engineering team solves the problem as long as they check those boxes, I have to like accept it, right? Otherwise, I need to get better at writing acceptance criteria. If I end up getting what I don't like back in return for the acceptance criteria that I wrote, then like, I just need to, we need to get better at writing acceptance criteria. But I use it also as a measure of making sure that we understand what the requirement is. And so we work on these things together. I might start a couple of bullets of acceptance criteria, but then we'll work on them together to make sure that we're on the same page with what I'm asking for to be solved. I see. So it is a way to define or evoke the requirement yes. that the customer base has not just one customer probably, and within it, the acceptance criteria are a way to basically have a metric on whether or not this was met. Yeah, another way to look at acceptance criteria is like, how what is what does done look like, right? And so like, how far do we want to take the story? Sometimes when we're coming up with acceptance criteria, I'll also ask like, what's an example of taking it too far? Because like, sometimes you'll you'll end up like with engineers that are unclear on like how far they should solve the problem, they'll take it way too far. And uh, it's like, I don't, I didn't necessarily mean for it to be solved that to the nth degree. And so like, it's, it's good to like talk about the boundaries of really what is done look like. So that'll be another kind of one of the questions that I talk about when we do acceptance criteria. Ah, we, sp we spent 400 hours, engineering hours, getting this report to run in uh, 13 seconds instead of uh, 30 seconds. And you're like, well, as long as it finished in two minutes, that was really <laughs> what I exactly, needed. So right. there's stuff like that. Yeah. I feel like. Acceptance criteria is analogous to job description and the hiring manager. You write the job description with somebody so that you're in alignment and you just want them to solve that problem. So they're in charge of hiring. That's exactly immediately what I thought of when you started talking about this. That's a pretty interesting analogy. For me, a lot like a, a lot of the reason also that I do acceptance criteria co collaboratively is like, Sometimes you'll write a requirement and you put some, you'll put some meat on the bone. You'll put some acceptance criteria in there. You put maybe a paragraph and you'll go in there and you'll talk about it and you'll just get like a lot of nods. And then, and cause they're not really thinking about how they might solve the problem or what is, 
what is an acceptable solution to the problem. They're not really thinking about that yet. And uh, so they're sort of like nodding at you and then they'll be like, okay, and then they'll appoint it or whatever the next part of the ceremony is. And then we'll move on. And then like two weeks later, six months later, whenever they're actually implementing this thing, then it's like, you know, what does this mean? And, and, you know, because like nobody was really in agreement of what we were asking for at the time. And so I think it's important to be collaborative. I do think that it takes too long. Like I need to work on that. Like this is my, my own self-criticism. I like getting faster at writing acceptance criteria or, or refining stories with a group is, is something I need to get better at. But I do think that it does quickly get alignment on what is the problem we're trying to solve. interesting to hear how some of David's role changes were a result of him being a company man almost to a fault he did the things that the company needed him to do and in doing that he got to look at things in a different way pursue some new challenges that maybe he wouldn't have otherwise pursued and he got to find out the types of things that he really liked and some things that he really didn't enjoy my favorite point was the one that he made about if you're going to make these changes, you shouldn't take a role and get stuck there. It is okay to go back to individual contributor if you pursue the management path. And I think that is a stereotype that we're trying to break for people. If you go toward management today, does that mean you must always be a manager and if you're an individual contributor today, must you always be an individual contributor? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think maybe goes back to one of the things that David talked about in part one, episode 195, about the power of working at a startup, where maybe that kind of movement is a lot less awkward. And because everybody has so many hats, it's a lot easier to say, hey, I want to take off this hat and hand it off to somebody else or we need somebody else to come in and wear this hat. It just was really interesting, I think, to get yet another perspective on that. Hey, if this isn't the right thing for you, don't hesitate to take a step in the other direction. Do the job that you actually want to do, not the one that you know the company needs you to do, maybe after you've figured out that that is uh, the case. I feel like this is somewhat tangential, John, to how a generalist might become a specialist. Yeah, that's another good point. Another good point. Or you could say it's another role in the generalist toolbox where you do a little bit of everything, have some experience in a bunch of different things. And then, you know, later on, when you decide that you need to specialize, you have some skills from across the spectrum. Speaking of skills, you definitely need some specific skills to be a player coach because you have to be a player and a coach. I just wonder if that model sometimes depending on where you are is doomed for failure because of the split in responsibilities of what you have to do i definitely admired david's honesty when he reflected back on you know i think i could have done better and i wasn't extremely interested in management at the time and because of that i didn't put an extreme amount of effort into it it's a really good point i think that in that situation maybe again in a startup or in a smaller organization, 
there's a little bit more of an ability to have somebody who's doing some individual contributor work also be the manager of the team. You know, if that person is backing up somebody who's on vacation or has small projects that they own, you know, or they're taking on, you know, specific tasks out of the backlog to work on and be the the primary developer on. But the larger the organization, I think the the more quote unquote doomed to fail that is. A manager is a full time position. So to add on top of the job of managing to also do individual contributor work is really, really difficult. It's an overload. Yeah, and maybe at some companies that gap is filled by a technical lead. Exactly, yeah. Who can go back and forth, and maybe there's a percentage of time that's allocated for each one. We didn't get all the details of that, but I imagine it was a little bit less clear at a startup of how much time to spend on which. Yes, yes. And I think probably at larger organizations, you can start to see, as you pointed out, you know, tech leads or you know, a senior role, senior engineering role, or a staff engineering role or a principal might be the one who's taking on some of those larger overarching product defining, you know, directional stuff. And it's somebody, somebody's specific job to do some of those things and not the job of the manager to also come in and, and set the development tone and development direction. Now that I think about it, the definitions of user stories and acceptance criteria in relationship to the engineering world, the software engineering world, I found fascinating. These are phrases that I've heard and I've seen examples of, but I never really got that formal definition or discussion of what they are exactly and why they're important. It just seems to me that both of these things should be part of the toolkit that sales engineering people use. When we are prospecting, we should have user stories for the products that we're uh, representing in mind. You know, who, who are the roles that we're targeting? Why would they benefit? And then what is that outcome? Just that idea in and of itself, I found very powerful. And I started thinking about that, applying that concept in, in my own work. Just found that really cool. And then acceptance criteria, very close to what we use in proof of concepts. I think maybe a little bit more formalized. It's a slightly different take on on acceptance criteria, but just that rigorous definition so you're not spending too much time on things that don't matter, making sure that you have metrics, like what the granularity of them are, and then have really good back and forth discussions so everybody's on the same page about them. Very powerful. I think we do a variation of that but understanding other people's use of that phrase and what it means, I think is very powerful. And maybe we start to pull some of that over. And you know what? I'm thinking that podcasters could use user stories and acceptance criteria to write things like their intros and outros. Have you heard that? <laughs> oh, that that would be really interesting. I, I feel like it's a little bit more like a, a stand-up meeting and... Uh, maybe a retrospective. But, you know, now that I say that, those are part of the Agile ceremonies. And I don't think that we've gotten a definition of what those are. Maybe we'll get those in part three. What do you think? I'm hopeful. Yeah. In order to actually find out whether or not we do. 
tune in for part three next week. Hey, John, with part three on tap, I think that's all we had to talk about. Anything else pop into your mind before we get out of here? Nope, that's about it. Just a reminder again that we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore for John White at B Journeyman. Signing off. Adios. Just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder and ceremonies to take part in. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. Awesome. Does that mean I'm doing the closing? Oh, wow. I guess so. Okay. I just went straight to it. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's all right. Ah! All right. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm Nick Cordy. I'm not Nick Cordy. Do you want me to rewind back and just start over to make this consistent and easy? Yeah, sure. Let's do it.